Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Who's looking forward to Christmas? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, good. Well, I was thinking about my memories of Christmas, my most, maybe my most memorable Christmas as a kid. I was seven years old. I remember uh, it was very memorable because I got two very memorable gifts. One was a Cabbage Patch kid named Mikey, okay? Um, Mikey was named after the kid who liked Life Cereal, okay, that would eat the Life Cereal. That, I love that. I love Life Cereal, and I love the commercial, and I named my Cabbage Patch kid after Mikey, the kid who likes Life Cereal. Um, and you kids don't even eat Life Cereal. Like, ooh, gross. Yeah, I get it. Maybe you do. Okay, good, good. All right, good. You and me, man. JD, good. Um, so I got a, a Cabbage Patch kid. Uh, it was a big deal back then. Um, and then I, I got a giant styrofoam glider, okay? Now, I tried. I, I really, I've been to like five stores in the last 24 hours trying to find a giant styrofoam glider. And the one place that had them, they were all sold out. So this is still a popular gift, evidently. Um, but it, it looked like this, okay? So something along these lines. They didn't have these cool stickers, uh, but it looked a lot like that. So gigantic styrofoam glider sitting in my living room. When I walked out. I remember just being so thrilled, super excited. I loved airplanes. I uh, lived on a military base. Airplanes would always be flying all around. Um, and so I was super excited to have this glider. And later that day, after we had you know, opened all the presents and eaten and done all those things for, for Christmas morning, I remember we, we went out. I was looking so forward to getting to fly this thing. We went out. We found kind of a, a, a construction area that there wasn't anything being built on it yet. They had just cleared a bunch of land. And so there was this wide open space. And we got out there in the wide open space. I was so excited, and I, I got my glider, and I reared back, and I threw it as hard as I could, and it made this huge, majestic loop, and I was just thrilled to watch this thing take off, and it made the loop, and it got to the top, and then it came down, and it crashed, and it broke into two pieces. Like, broke, broke. Like, there, were, I, I, there, was, there was taping and, and gluing and attempts. To, there was no, it was done, okay? I got one throw with my giant styrofoam glider, and it was done, okay? You ever experienced that kind of disappointment? Yeah? There was no second chance. I had one chance to throw that glider, one chance to enjoy that gift. And again, have you ever felt like that? I got one chance, and that chance just didn't go the way I'd hoped. I mean, you have all the anticipation, looking forward, and it just doesn't go the way you hoped. If you've ever felt like that, Zechariah, though it will take you on a loop-de-loop kind of ride, similar to the the path of that airplane, minus the big crash at the end, uh, Zechariah is especially helpful to you and to me as we think about what it means to to maybe think, "Eh, I'm not sure if I have a second chance. As a reminder, we've been, and we're, we're right here at the tail end of this series, Minor Prophets, Major Mission, and, and we call them the Minor Prophets not because they are minor in significance, but because they are shorter in length. But what's interesting is uh, Zechariah is actually 
one of the longer, it is the longest of our minor prophets, 14 chapters. And so it starts to look a lot like those major prophets, but it still fits into this category of the minor prophets. And so we're going to get started today and look at Zechariah and this question of, does God give a second chance? So here's the very beginning, as we've done. Uh, We're told, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Now, of the minor prophets, like I said, this is the longest and the most quoted in the New Testament. You go to the New Testament, what you'll find is there are 71 quotations just of Zechariah. And especially in, in the, from the chapters 9 through 14. So the last, there, there's kind of three parts to Zechariah. So the third part of Zechariah, uh, a majority of them, so about 30 or so, come from just that section. And then the other 40 are broken up across the book. But 71 quotations from the book of Zechariah you find in the New Testament. And, and as you read it, and if you've, you've read it, what you'll find is it is made up of a striking variety of symbolic visions, of challenging teaching, and then poetic oracles. Those are kind of the three parts. There's these visions, there's this teaching, and then there are these oracles, these oracles, these prophetic uh, uh, images and, and accounts. And Zechariah, his name means God remembers. And we see this, this is taking place at the same time that Haggai takes place. So Zechariah and Haggai are prophets at the same time. And, and they're speaking to the people of God roughly the same time. Now, Zechariah's ministry lasts longer, um, but here what we see is God remembering his people, even as they've been brought back out of exile, and now they find themselves in this sort of disappointing time, expecting for the glory of Israel to be returned, expecting that things were going to be really great now that, they had, that, now that Babylon had been dealt with, and now they were under Persian rule, but even that was disappointing because they thought, wait, wait, no, we're supposed to be our own nation. We're supposed to be worshiping God and everything's supposed to be good and prosperous and and it's just not. And so we're reminded God does remember. And so here comes Zechariah and at the same time as Haggai, um, God uses Zechariah to also spur on the building of the temple. We, We said last week, the temple is the center of the worship of God's people. And so without the temple, and because they had put off rebuilding the temple, what really they were doing was were putting off worshiping God. They They were treating the worship of God as sort of a secondary matter. They had to take care of their own personal issues, and then they would get around to actually walking and walking with God and worshiping Him. And God says, no, that's not the way this is supposed to work. And so here we find, though, God had returned His people to their place God's still got a task for Zechariah, and that's to spur them to a different, far more important return. It's return that gives an answer to this question, does God give second chances? And so I want you to hear what God says through Zechariah here at the very beginning of chapter 1. It says in verse 2, The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? 
But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And so, again, here is really a summary of what God's getting at all, all through Zechariah's ministry. The summary is this. You folks have been away from me. It's not so much that you left the land, that was important, but the the bigger departure was you left me. I told you what to do, I told you how to live, and you decided you knew better. And so you've, you've left, and I'm now telling you, return. Return to me, I will return to you, we will be back together. And it tells us here that the people repented. We looked at that word last week, that's this turning back. That the people repented, and they said, as the Lord of armies has decided, good. We're on board. And you would think, again, that we could just stop there and go, well, message delivered, message received, the people have done what they need to do. Why all this other stuff? Six verses. I mean, that's, that's a minor profit for you. Why, why do we need this other rest of 13 and a half verses or chapters? Well, in part, it's important to recognize, right, when we talk about repentance, when we talk about turning, that some turning takes longer than others. I mean, think about this in your own life. Years ago, somebody made this comparison to me, and it's, it's really been helpful to me in thinking about this concept of repentance, of, of turning away from one thing and, and turning back to uh, the thing that is good. And in this case, turning to God. And the comparison was this. You know, if you think about um, the different kinds of vehicles or the different ways that you would get somewhere, Right? Think about if you were to, to go sailing across the ocean in a, in a giant ship, okay? And all of a sudden, as you were making your way, let's, let's say you were headed across the Atlantic, and all of a sudden somebody said, hey, we need you to come back. Okay, for that ship to turn, to return, to make its way back, it's got to make a really wide turn. Okay? That's, that's a big turn for a ship to, to turn completely around, make a 180. But let's say you were driving in your car and you were making your way to somewhere and, and you know, somebody calls you from home and says, hey, hey, wait, we don't need what you were going to get. You, you can come back. Well, you, you do your little three-point kind of thing or whatever. You find a place where you do that. But, but that turn that's necessary to turn that car around, it, it's, it's a much narrower turn. It's, it's a much easier turn than the wide turn that's required for that giant ship. But if I was just walking along, you know, I'm in the house and I'm, I'm headed somewhere to do something, and somebody calls me and says, hey, can I ask you a question? To turn around and go back to where they are, right, that, that takes almost nothing. I can turn around, and that's a, that's a quick, easy return. And it's important, if you're tracking with me, right, it's important to recognize that there are certain changes in our life that, that man, they, they happen really quickly. They, the return happens, and it's just like I'm walking, and I, I make that really quick pivot. And there's other returns, there's other changes in our life that, that you know, they take a little bit, but, but you, you can make that turn, just kind of being in the car, and you, you can make that turn, and you can get back where you're going pretty quickly. And then there are other changes, there are other repentances, right, there, that are, they take a lot, there's a long way to go to get that thing turned around. And so it is as we think about the Christian life, one that's described by, um, famously, Martin Luther described life as all, like the Christian life as, as basically all of repentance. I mean, it's just a life of repentance. It's a life of turning. And there are, 
there are certain things where we make just really quick turns. And maybe that's been your experience if, if you've tried to walk with the Lord. And you say, man, certain things happen, and it just came easy. Like, I made a turn, and it just, it was easy. And then there's other things, and you're looking at it over months and years and maybe even decades going, why am I still in this loop? I, it seems like I should just be farther along. And so for wherever you are, however repentance or this returning sounds, it's important for us to recognize, as it was for the people of God in this instance, and as it is for all of us, that, there, that repentance takes some different forms. It, it takes some different, different paths. And sometimes it takes far longer than we anticipate. And so that's part of why Zechariah doesn't end after verse 6 here. Is because this was a repentance that was going to take a long time. This was a giant ship that needed turning. And so Zechariah continues. And what we find here is with God, second chances are a certainty. Okay. What Zechariah wants us to see is that with God, second chances are a certainty. Now, Haggai, he's, he's kind of like... I don't know. I'm going to compare him to an engineer. Now, I have a background in engineering, and some of you are going to hear this description and go, well, if that's what an engineer is, that's not you. Um, and, and here's the thing. Haggai was a little bit more like an engineer. He's short, to the point, right? Efficient. Okay, that's where you're realizing, oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, but what, what Haggai does is he's engaging our reasoning. He, he's kind of engaging our minds. And so we get three chapters. Very quickly, he's describing this kind of return that needs to happen in the life of God's people. Zechariah is different. He's a little bit more like an artist. He's going to use lots of different images. He's going to engage our imaginations. And it can be a bit frustrating as you, as you dive into Zechariah going, what on earth? Okay, and you kids especially, you, may, you haven't probably read this, and we're not going to get into all of these different images, but, but wait for it. Okay, there's a lot of pretty interesting things going on in Zechariah. But both of these guys, Haggai and Zechariah, are called upon to jar us from our complacency. They're meant to help move us past our disappointment and, again, return to the Lord. And so what does it look like, given the fact that there are these different radiuses of returning, right? What does it look like for us to embrace God's second chances? And there's these three main sections in Zechariah that give us the picture. And so the first one is this. First, we return to God as we submit to his rule. Okay, we, so we return to God as we submit to his rule. Now, this first section is Zechariah 1 through 6. We are not going to read all, of cha- all six chapters. Okay? Um, but in Zechariah 1 through 6, you see eight visions. And I, I gave you this picture. This is a picture from Bible Project, their summary of the book of Zechariah. And you're not meant to be able to read all this. But what I want you to see is they kind of map out these eight visions. And what they're showing is that there's a certain symmetry here. Okay, one sort of matches up with eight, and two matches with seven, and three matches with six, and four with five. So there's a certain symmetry going on in the book of, Ze- of Zechariah with these images, these, these visions that Zechariah describes. And, and they're wild images. Okay, what, what you're going to see in here, there are things like horses and, and horns, and there's these women flying with storks' wings. Okay, kids, I told you, like, there's some pretty exciting things here. Okay, there's these women, and they're, they're carrying this basket, and they've got stork wings. And there's even a flying attack scroll. Okay, like, this is pretty amazing stuff. There's this scroll flying through the air, kind of dealing with God's enemies. 
Okay? So pretty exciting stuff, but can also be a little confusing. But in the midst of these, uh, these images, we, we hear some statements like this. Chapter 1, verse 17. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Then it goes on in chapter 2, verse 13, in the third vision. It says, Let all people be silent before the Lord, for from His holy dwelling He has roused Himself. In chapter 3, verse 10, we hear this. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. There's other statements like this, and I've condensed this down, but there are other statements like this, and all of them, what they're pointing to is the fact that God is returning, that the king is coming. And so we are to submit to his rule. But what does that rule look like? Well, it looks like prosperity. It looks like peace. It looks like this day where you'll be able to sit under your vine and your fig tree. I know you guys all have your own vine and fig trees. Um, and, and, but you'll have that and you'll be able to in, invite your neighbor, hey, come and sit a spell with me. There, it, it's these images of peace, of prosperity. You have what you need and you're able to share with others in the community. It's a picture of this kingdom where the king is good and he provides and he cares for his people. And so we're being told, submit to his rule. And, and really, another way to think about the way these visions break down is essentially the first half of them, or really one through about four or five, are describing the coming of the king. And the last three are describing the removal of everything that stands in opposition to the king. Now why? Because those are things that will get in the way of him bringing this prosperity, this goodness into his kingdom. And so that's where the flying attack scroll shows up to get rid of these things that are causing problems in the kingdom. Things that will destroy. Namely, what he's saying is sin will be driven out of this kingdom. It will be removed. And so... In the absence, when sin is removed, then prosperity and goodness can reign. God's good reign will take place. And so what does the rule of God mean for us? Well, there's these little, those little nuggets that give us a little bit of an idea of what does this look like practically. He says at one point in, in the fifth vision, he says uh, to, to, through Zechariah to Zerubbabel, he says, so he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. He's giving a little, a little understanding of, well, how is this going to work? And what's this, this rule going to look like? What's it going to look like when the kingdom comes? He says, not by might or strength, but by my spirit. And then a little later, he makes this statement. In verse 10, he says, who despises the day of small things? Who despises the day of small things? It's an interesting question. And, and what he's doing is he's dealing with the fact that, again, the people are a bit beat down. They're disappointed. And in their minds, they're looking at even the beginnings of the rebuilding of the temple going, what difference is this really going to make? We're setting after it, but, you know, we've, we've, we've had kingdom after kingdom. These other nations come in and kind of destroy things. And, like, if they do it, you may have dispelled them, but, but then 
we're bound to just get going on this and then somebody else rises up. And wh- why does this even matter? And so he says to the people who are despising small things, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Understand something's happening here. What's the, what's the message? The message is this. If God rules, one, waiting then is a form of working. If God rules, and, and his rule is as he's described it here, this, this bringing of prosperity and goodness, then waiting is a form of working. We acknowledge that he is actively bringing about his plans. So our plans need to prior, prioritize that. We recognize, yes, there is strength and there is might that we might have, but ultimately, God, by His Spirit, is going to bring things about. We've got to trust Him to work. And so waiting is a form of working. It doesn't mean we, don't, we sit by and don't do anything. That's not the message here. The message is, no, 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 but understand, as you're working, there's something bigger going on. As you actively wait for God, He's working behind the scenes, which also leads into the second big thing to know. If God rules, then small is big. We looked at this way back at the beginning of 2021, this very passage. If God rules, small is big. What that means is that small things are significant in God's sight. He sees them, and he will use them. Very often, again, just like the folks here, we get going, we're doing these small little things. Does it really matter if I spend time reading my Bible, is it really going to make much difference if I spend time praying to the Lord? Will it really make a difference if I show up for church or my small group this week? I mean, nobody's going to really notice. Will it really matter? Are these, they seem like small things, and God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I see the small things. I'm going to use the small things. Don't despise the small things in my kingdom. And that leads us then to the last part of this section. There's this bonus vision, but it's more than a vision. It's a sign act. You see this happen a number of times with the prophets. Is they're called upon to sort of do this performance drama in, in, the light of, in front of the people to show them sort of how things are going to happen using their own lives as the model. And there's this sign act that Zechariah is to perform. Chapter 6, verse 11, he's told, take silver and gold, Make a crown and place it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We met Joshua back in Haggai. You were to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch. He will branch out from his place and build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will be clothed in splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. There will also be a priest on his throne. And there will be peaceful counsel between the two of them. The crown will reside in the Lord's temple as a memorial to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah. People who are far off will come and build the Lord's temple, and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. This will happen when you fully obey the Lord your God. So it's this presentation of, this, uh, of the coming return of the kingdom, but it's a reminder there will be a ruler and he's this, this prophet, priest, who, who's really described sort of as two people. But we get an, an idea that, well, these two people are going to really get along well. We begin to wonder, well, is it two people? Is it one person? And what we find here is, again, just to, to sum this up, is God's rule will come in the form of a human ruler. 
We're to expect that there will be somebody, a human, who will actually be really important in bringing about the rule of God. But we're also told this will happen as a result of obedience. When you fully obey, then you'll see this take place, he says here at the end of chapter 6. And that leads to the next way that we are to return to God. As we move into this next section, chapters 7 and 8, the next way is obey His Word. We return to God as we obey His Word. Two years later, after Zechariah has all these visions and explains them to the people, two years later, Zechariah is told to prophesy again. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer, Regem Melech, and their men to plead for the Lord's favor by asking the priests who were at the house of the Lord of armies as well as the prophets, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? Okay. Now what they're really asking is, should we keep mourning or is the kingdom that you mentioned before coming? Okay. In other words, they're going, we've sort of been in this mourning pattern. You know, things are pretty bleak. Should we keep doing these festivals, these mourning festivals, or, or, or is it time to, to welcome the kingdom? I mean, is, is all those, that stuff you've been talking about, you, you mentioned through Zechariah a couple years ago, but you've mentioned to us through all the prophets many different ways, is now the time? And the response is, God responds to them. He says this in, chapter four, or in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and in the seventh months, seventh months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? And, and so he asks the question, and then he answers the question. When you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? He says, have you really been fasting as a way to know me and to seek me? He says, no, you've been doing this because you selfishly thought this is something you needed to do to help just make life go better for you. You weren't really pursuing me. You're just pursuing this religion. And, and all that, the trappings of that weren't meant to be an end in themselves. They're meant to, to help you know me. And again, it's a reminder for us. If we're just going through the motions, because we think that somehow God's going, well, again, he's paying attention to the small things, but if we think the small things are significant apart from him, then we've reduced the small things to, to things that they're never meant to be. These are small things that God says, no, no, this is, this is about knowing me. It's about seeking me. And he goes on and he explains why they'd been in exile. Verse 12, it says, They made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of armies had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Therefore, intense anger came from the Lord of armies. He says, no, you, you guys, again, you were doing all this stuff, but your hearts were hard. You didn't really want to obey. That was the issue. But then the word of the Lord comes again. And I want you to hear this description. He says, this is the way it used to be, but, but listen to way, the way it's going to be. Chapter 8, verses 1. It says, the word of the Lord of armies came. The Lord of armies says this. I am extremely jealous for Zion. I am jealous for her with great wrath. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion and live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord of armies will be called 
the holy mountain. The Lord of armies says this, Old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of advanced age. The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in them. The Lord of armies says this, Though it may seem impossible to the remnant of this, this people in those days, should it also seem impossible to me? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be their faithful and righteous God. It's a promise of the future. It's a promise that, again, God's rule will bring prosperity. It will bring security. You, you, guys, you catch it? It said there that there would be these, these people who are sitting. The old folks, the old men and women will sit in the streets with a staff. Now, I know some of you guys, you, you got staffs. You're going, oh, I don't really like that I have to use this. Okay? But this was a sign of blessing. It's a blessing because it's saying, look, you're going to live. You're going to prosper. There's going to come a day. You're going to get to just sit in peace outside. And the streets, instead of being filled with war and, and wondering, well, what's going to happen next that's going to cause damage, you can sit out there and just enjoy it. You're going to get to sit out and enjoy watching the generations where the kids can just play and not fear. It's a picture of the prosperity, of the security that God was going to bring to his people. It's a promise of a second chance, of a fresh start. But this fresh start is marked not just by different circumstances for the people. It's marked by a different kind of living. It's marked by obedience to the good king's ways. And so they're told in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 16, these are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. And do not love perjury, for I hate all this. This is the Lord's declaration. And then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Oh, that's, that's the end. Oh, no, it did. Then, then verse 19. The Lord of armies says this. The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth will become times of joy, gladness, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. He says, look, Again, the day will come when you'll no longer mourn. But to, to move towards those days is to move towards a kind of living in the days that you have. Days filled with truth, love, and peace. And so this is how we submit to God's rule. We acknowledge that His Word has authority. And it's not just any authority, it's good. It's good authority. And if it has authority, and God the King is good then we have to treat obedience as a delight. To see it as a get-to. I get to do what the king has said. I made, it's made possible that I could do this thing. And not only that, but we need to seek clarity on what is right. Well, what does it mean to live in the king's ways? How do we do that? And who might we learn from? This is where, again, the life of the church becomes this place where we're learning and we're helping each other to live according to the king. Because we get to. We're getting to do this, not just doing enough to get by. A way to think about it is we're called to, to do good, not just look good. To, to really, truly be good. Because we understand that, that this is good. The king is good. His ways are good. 
So we need to learn to walk in those ways. And that's where forming relationships with people who are farther along, asking input, being a part of things that are, you know, that are opportunities to learn God, His Word, His ways. Those things are about understanding. I get to enjoy this second chance and submit to God's rule, the rule of a good and gracious king. But as you're thinking about that, it may raise a problem. And it raises a problem for everybody who would return to God and enjoy His return to them. Again, turning rarely happens all at once. Right? There's some big radii, radiuses, when it comes to turning, returning. And so sometimes in the waiting, right, in, in the, the midst of this large turn, we begin to wonder, is this turn really possible? Is it really going to take place? And the same was true for the people of God. And so what happens is sometime later, scholars aren't exactly sure when, Zechariah is called upon once again. Okay, so chapters 9 through 14 actually take place many years later. And, and here Zechariah is called upon to remind God's people that he was indeed returning and that second chances are certain. And he teaches them to sub, that to submit to God's rule and obey his word means that we must trust his Savior. We must trust his Savior. Again, I'm not going to read all of 9 through 14, but there's this trail of breadcrumbs that we're sort of led along once again to a picture, create a picture of the day of the Lord. And we see as we go along this trail, this picture coming into greater clarity. Chapter 9, verse 9, the passage we read as our call to worship. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then a little later, chapter 10, verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. And they will be as though I had never rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. And a little later, chapter 12, we read this, verse 10, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn. For him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitter, bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now this is, this is where you start to go, wait, wait, what? How is God pierced? How can that take place? Keep walking along the trail. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day a fountain will be opened for a house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. That's what this... Savior, King, was going to do. And then we're told in, ver in chapter 14, verse 9, On that day, the Lord will become King over the whole earth, the Lord alone, and His name alone. And this trail then culminates in the last two verses here. It says, On that day, chapter 14, verse 20, On that day, the words, Holy to the Lord, will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. And you say, well, what in the world? There's a lot of, well, why are we talking pots and pans all of a sudden? 
right? This grand day when everybody gets to wash dishes together. That's not what's going on, okay? What's being described is a day where even the most mundane things are all set apart for the worship of the Lord. It's this picture of this grand day when we will worship God truly. It's all brought about through this Savior King. How do we know? Well, it's a lot of Bible that tells us, but specifically here, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter very clearly helps fill in the picture. He tells us this, concerning this salvation, the prophets, talking about Zechariah as one of them, who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. What Peter says is, way back then, when Zechariah and Haggai and all the others were, were preaching and they were talking about this day of the Lord, they were pointing ahead and they were dealing with things near, but they were also talking about things far. This day when the king would come. And indeed, that king who would suffer but then would rise in glory, that king has come. And he's come so that not just the people who are living in the time of Zechariah could know the goodness of the king, but the king has come so that people for all time, for all places, could know the king. The king has come. He has returned to his people. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that the king has come. He's come so that we could return to him. He makes second chances not just possible, not just a chance, but a certainty. And he will come again. Again, he, these guys were talking about near and far and even farther. He's coming again. But in the meantime, in this in-between, we get to live out our king's rule. Again, remember what I said earlier. Remember that at the centerpiece of the people's worship in both Haggai and Zechariah's day and, and all through the, the time of the Old Testament, at the, at the center of their worship was the temple. It had been destroyed, but it would be rebuilt and worship would be restored. But in this in-between, we're to remember what Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what Jesus has done is he's come, and he himself was the temple. He was torn down and yet raised again. But in this in-between from when he's come and when he's coming again, he says, I'm building my people into a temple. It's in my people that true worship will take place. I didn't get another chance to throw my styrofoam glider. But years later, I got to design and build a glider that won a city competition. 
And years after that, I got to work for a company and, and get to help in the designing of 757 actual jets. What we have in our good and gracious king is not just a second chance. What we have is a forever certainty. He's called us to be his people, to be his temple, to be the people who submit to his rule, obey his word, and trust him and walk in his ways. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you spoke to your people in Zechariah's day. And we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for his life, the challenges and struggles he dealt with. Not just for himself or for the people of that time, but as your word tells us, he was struggling and prophesying and doing that even for us to point us to the Savior, to the true prophet, priest, and king. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do just as we've seen today, to submit to your rule, to obey gladly to your word, knowing that the only way we can really truly do that is to trust your Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for your life and your death and your resurrection. We honor you as our King. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us And join us again next week for another podcast from the Grove Church. Have a great day.